great. I don't know if you're like me. Hopefully, in some areas, you're not. But when I read novels or I'm watching a movie, many times I'll put myself into that situation. A lot of times I'll pick a character and kind of think about what I would do if I was in that situation. I've approached the Bible like that quite often. And I remember in high school, when I was a senior, to the chagrin of my father, I turned down scholarships to several secular universities to attend a small Bible college in San Jose, one where I was going to have to take loans and do some work. And, but, but during that process, the pastor of the church, uh, Jim Parker, during that summer, took me out on various ministry situations and visitations, and I started to, to identify more with Timothy and with Jim Parker as, as really my Paul. And that continued on as I went to Bible college. Da- Professor Dallas Mazur became my new Paul, and, and I learned so much from him. Now, both of these gentlemen, they were different in size and stature, but they both had this this personality that, that I really assumed Paul would have. And, and as a very shy person, it was scary, but at the same time, really helped me along the pathway where God wanted me. You know, I, I, I studied for the ministry. I actually served for a, a short period of time in the paid professional ministry. But after that, I really had many opportunities in churches, even though I was working in the computer field, to preach and to teach and to do all kinds of ministries. And I started to then move away from feeling like Timothy to moving and feeling a little bit like Paul, even though we would not look the same if you saw us in the same room. But, but because I had my own Timothys that I was pouring my life into that were doing youth ministry or doing various other kinds of things. But lately, I've started to feel a little bit like the Apostle John. Now, now John's the only one of the apostles who lived a full natural life. Uh, it wasn't a very good, uh, l- very good longevity to be an apostle in those times. They did not tend to live all that long. But, but I really started to see what John was trying to do. And when you li- read the Gospel of John, you read First John that we're going through now, how he really desired for people to know, for Christians to know that they had eternal life, to understand what they meant, and to fight against those false teachers who had entered the church. And, and if I look back at a lot of the teaching that I've done, a lot of the classes over the past 20 years, those themes seem to come over and over again. In fact, I, I, I'm going to talk about the theology program. So if you could put, go ahead and put my slide up. One of the reasons I, I teach this is because I want Christians to know what they believe and why they believe it. And, and coming up in April, we're going to have an opportunity for the third in this series is on Trinitarianism, which is just about who God is and what are his attributes and how do we understand our relationship with him. And and it will go into a lot of those theological concepts, one of them being, well, how could there be three in one? Or how could Jesus be 100% God, 100% man? Something called the hypostatic union, which you can learn about by coming to class. But really, what it is, is to set the ground to to give you the assurance that, yes, I know God exists. Yes, I know who he is, and I know how to share him with other people. So I just wanted to invite you. It's going to happen April 6th. Uh, You can attend in person, or you can attend in Zoom. So there's the commercial. That you may know. We're we're going to cover the last half of John chapter 5. Now, when Tim spoke last week, he said, oh, this section that I have in the first part contains some of my favorite themes that are there. 
Well, this section contains some of the difficult themes that are sometimes hard to understand. And, and so I, I'm, I'm, hopefully we can get through this and, and we can find out what really John is talking about here. He starts off, verse 13 is really his theme verse for the entire letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. To know you have eternal life. In his gospel, now, now John's gospel was written maybe decades after the first three. The first three are the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're known as the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. They tell some of the same stories. They have some kind of the, the same general overview of things. John had time to think about it and really kind of approach it in a little bit different way. So it's, that's why it's not part of the synoptic gospels. And, and, and he, what he did was he took and he, he showed seven signs that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the earth. So in some respects, it's an evangelical or evangelistic book to convince others that he really is who he said he is. But it's also a book that helps us as Christians to have our assurance and faith that God is there and that we are connected. So he starts off this way. Now, I talked about the seven sign gifts. So he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So you see the similarities between the two. He was so focused on on making sure not only Christians, but those who are on the edge would understand he is who he says he is and to bring them to faith. There's a lot of tools now that, that are available. I can remember when I went to seminary going up to the third story of the library to the section that was so dusty that I don't think anybody had been there in 20 years to try to find research books. And now so much is online. One of the tools that are out there is the Blue Letter Bible. BlueLetterBible.org. And one of the things it has is, is these word picture things. So it takes all the words and it makes the, the word, the size depend on how many times it appears in the book. So you can, you can see it up here and there's certain words that just jump out at you. God, of course, really jumps out. No and love that we've talked about over the past several weeks. But there are also some words that are important that might not have been stated as many times. And so when I look at First John, these are the key words that, that really I think John is emphasizing. Light. And especially comparing light to darkness. So it only appears six times, but it's an essential key concept he has there. Believe, used nine times. Life, 15 times. No, 40 times. We're going to hit that theme quite a bit. And love that we've talked about recently, 46 times. And, and it's already been stated by others who preach this series that John wrote to really meet a major heresy that was happening with inside the church. And, and this heresy was called Gnosticism. And it's from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word no. And so John is trying to take that word and reclaim it from these Gnostics who said what Jesus did and who he is isn't as essential as the secret knowledge that you could get. In fact, because of their system, they downplayed Jesus' humanity because anything that's spiritual is good, anything that's physical is bad. 
And, and that led to actually two difficulties or, or two extremes for them. One was they, they would say, well, my body's bad, so I'll just torture it and beat it and, and starve it. And, and that way my spirit could, could be even greater than it is. Or they said, hey, the, the spirit and the body are so disconnected, I could do whatever I want with my body because it doesn't affect my spiritual life. And, and if you, you go back and remember the things we've talked about in John, you can see how he keeps putting that idea together, especially talking about sin, that it matters what we do and that our faith and our belief should come out in actions, not just in knowledge. So that's really where John is at. He wants us to have true Gnosticism, true knowledge. So if we highlight the words in that theme verse, we see believe and know and life. He goes on from there and he says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So let's stop there for a moment. How many of you have confidence that you could right now go to Sacramento to see the governor and be let in and be able to tell him whatever it is you want to tell him and he would sit there and listen to you. How many of you have confidence? I see no hands. I have 100% negative confidence that would happen. I know that wouldn't happen. Unless I was a billionaire, maybe I could get myself in there, right? But we have the confidence to approach God, the creator of all things, because of what Jesus did for us, because we have that life. He says, we have the confidence to approach him, and whatever we ask, he will hear us. Now, he has a phrase in there. You notice that? You see that? According to his will. And he goes on in verse 15, and says, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have whatever we asked of. Now, Sometimes we take scripture and we kind of carve out the pieces we don't like so we can focus on the pieces we do like. That's one of the problems with taking a verse out of context, right? Oh, I like this verse because it says exactly what I want, but you didn't read the verses before it and after it or equate it with the other verses in the Bible. And here, there's sometimes Christians will look at this and they'll look at other verses similar, and we'll look at one of them in a minute, and go, oh, I could ask God for anything and he's going to do it because because he loves me and then when it doesn't happen we get disappointed with God right God uh, why are you leaving me out here like this and and so it's because we didn't really ask it in his will now let me give an illustration of that how many of you have children okay I see quite a few hands my I loved when my children especially were younger and they would come to me, oh, daddy, can I have this? Or daddy, can we do this? And if at all possible, I really wanted to give it to them. I, the joy that they experienced, I wanted to see that. I think God's a lot like that. But there are times they ask for something and I go, okay, that's going to kill you or harm you in some way. No, you can't have that. And they go, oh, but daddy, I want it. Why don't you love me? Because I love you, I don't give you something that will destroy you. Now, there are times they ask for something and to teach them a lesson. Now, my children are no longer under 18, so you can't get child protective services after me. But sometimes I would let them actually do it or have it, hoping they would learn the lesson, ooh, that wasn't a good thing at all. And I think God sometimes does that for me. I know, I don't know if he does it for you, but he's done it for me. But we can have confidence that our God Because of what Jesus did, because we have that connection now, 
will do the things that will be right and good. And we can trust him. Now, the hard part is that when things don't, aren't going the way you want them to, to realize that God has to be doing the right thing. And I'm going to just surrender and trust that he's doing the right thing. He goes on from there. Well, really, back at, I want to take an illustration from the Gospel of John. And, and here's where he, he's, there's a kind of a similar phrase to this. And, and I'm starting with 12, which is a little bit sometimes difficult to quite understand. But he says this. Verily, verily, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I do, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son, and you may ask me anything in my name, and I'll do it. Now, this is when he had revealed he is going away from them. <laughs> that he's revealing what's going to happen. He's going to die, and he'll be away from them. But, but he's trying to, to give them confidence that they'll still be okay. And in fact, the question is, what does he mean when he says they're going to do greater things than what Jesus did? And, and we say, I, I don't know how many people I've raised from the dead. I think it's zero. And I prayed for people who are sick and some got better, but I don't, I'm not sure I'm the healer he was. But, but really, it seems to be that we're going to take what he started. He, we're going to take the salvation he brought and bring it to the whole world. We're going to be the ambassadors and conduit for that to happen. And, and that's how I kind of envision that. There, there are some other people who say other things, but I'm right, so believe me. But what he says is that I do whatever you ask if you ask what? In my name. That doesn't mean that when you finish a prayer, he says, in Jesus' name, that it has to happen. But it's kind of like a person who's an ambassador, you know, for the United States, they go to another country. What do they do there? They do whatever the president or whatever the nation sent them to do. They're a representative of that nation, and they're going to really fit within the parameters of what the, that nation's trying to do for this nation. And, and that's really what this means, is that we're, we're focused on what Jesus' work and ministry was, and we're entering into it so that when we're in alignment with that, then, then the things that need to happen will happen. And we can just trust God in that again. So, so you, the parallel between the two is what I was really seeing. In Luke twenty-two forty-two through 44, we see an example of this in the life of Jesus. Now, this was in the garden. That he knew the next day his crucifixion was coming. And he says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You see, Jesus knew, first of all, the physical torment that he was about to go through, probably better than anyone. He also knew the emotional torment he would go through, but he was also going to go through a spiritual torment. Now, not every theologian agrees with me here, But I really think, you know, Colossians kind of tells us when he came to earth in human form, there was a, there was something that he kind of gave up his prerogative as God, and maybe there was a lesson that he was communicating through God. So there was a little bit of a, a a disconnect that that he never experienced before. But when he he died on the cross and he he screamed out, "Father, Father, why have you forsaken me?" It seems as if there was a total disconnect for a moment because of the sin of the world that came upon him 
And it's like he was now separated in some respects from God. It still boggles my mind. I'm not sure if I'm even correct, but it just the idea is there, there was some spiritual pain that was so great that we'll never be able to comprehend it. And so as he's thinking about this and he's praying, he prays, hey, if there's, there isn't, if there's a way to remove this God, I'm, I'm for it. <laughs> but not my will, but yours be done. And, and that is our example too. When we're looking at things that are happening around us and we're praying for things, that we're always saying, but God, not my will, but yours be done. I believe, I, I, I want deliverance from this or I want this to occur. But God, I surrender to your will because you know it all and you are good and you will accomplish your will in the situation. John 5 goes on from there. He says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death There's a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there's a sin that does not lead to death. Now, here's where we really get some confusion. I've seen at least six different explanations about what this sin that leads to death is, but I want us to put that aside for a second because I want to concentrate what I think is John's real message here at first. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin, pray for them. It parallels what what James says. Hey, if you see someone, a brother or sister in sin, go to them, you know. You're you're, you're kind of in confrontation with love to help them through it because you don't want them to to wallow in that sin and, and to have that affect their lives and destroy them. You want to care enough to confront. You know, not in judgment like Jesus talks about. Hey, you don't, that's not how we're trying to do things. We're doing it out of love. And, and even if you do it that way, you know, we're afraid to do that. You know Why? Well, you already know why. Because they're not going to like it. And we don't like confrontation. Well, some of you do. I noticed you. Okay. But it, it, it's painful. What really is so important, though, is that we have a close, intimate relationship with others. And we can speak into their lives and they can speak into our lives. That's why the, the idea of missional communities or, or mentoring relationships, you know, all those are so important because we've gotten close to others. They know who we are and we know who they are and they're willing to listen to us better. It's, it's so important that we don't allow ourselves to be isolated. I'm, I'm going to talk about my story at the end and that was one of the, the keys to my downfall was my isolation. You know, we want to care about Are there brothers and sisters so much that it's not just about us? Well, that's them. They're doing their thing. No, we want to care enough to help them because we know the pain that they're going to be going through and and the destruction that can occur from that. So so that's, for my mind, what John's really trying to do. Now, what about the sin that leads to death? Well, one idea is there are levels of sin, right? Right? You know, this is a, oh, that's not so bad sin. And oh, wow, you've blown it sin, right? Uh, you've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. It's not in the Bible. But it's the idea that these are the sins, kind of like the gateway drugs that lead to even worse things. And so that, that you've got to try to avoid those. Or, or you maybe uh, if you have a Catholic background, especially the mortal versus venial sins, right? Yeah, I see some head shaking. Those mortal sins. Hey, if you don't get repentance and do the right stuff before you die, you're going to hell. You you, you were a Christian, you accepted Christ, but they're the ones that are so bad, they'll lead to death. The venial ones, ah, yeah, say hell, Mary, you'll be okay, kind of thing. 
I don't think that's true. In fact, somebody may be able to take a look at this as well. It's not those things. It's, it's only if you commit murder or you commit some sexual sin or, or apostasy where you just tell God, go away. Those are the only ones that might lead you to this death. I just don't see it biblically. Think, think of David. You know, David was a, a man after God's own heart, but what did he do? He committed murder. He committed adultery. And yet God sent Nathan to restore him. Now, there were huge consequences to that, but he still, God did not give up on him. Peter, remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? He denied him three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. And yet he was restored. My own story that I'm going to talk about at the end is another story of restoration. And, and so I don't think that it's referring to a specific sin that you do that would lead a Christian to spiritual death. There, there is some, somebody from the Blue Litter Bible, their commentary, I, I really like this person and I like a lot of what they say, but he's kind of focusing on the idea of death not being spiritual death, physical death. And he, he looks at James where there's a verse about how some are sinning some are sick because of it, and others have died or passed on because of it. And, and so his emphasis is, well, if a person goes off and does something and, and it causes their death, we don't need to pray for that sin anymore or even pray for them because they're already with the Father. So, so his emphasis is kind of there and, and kind of against what you'd see maybe in the Mormon church who has the baptisms for the dead or really some of the people that were in this time period who would do rituals for the dead. So, so that kind of is where he's at. What I think, though, is that this really is referring to those who are neglecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit, who have pushed God away and, and have come up with a whole new system and never, ever allow that testimony to change them and have them turn to Christ. Now, I got a lot of theologians in my back pocket that I could point to that, that hold this, so I'm not all alone. But, but the reason, one of the reasons I, I feel this is, is a verse from Matthew, Matthew 12. It says, And I tell you, every kind of sin and slander that can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And again, most who look at this see this as it's that testimony. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus. And if you're constantly pushing against it, you're you know, telling the Spirit, go away, you're stupid, I don't want you that you have never gotten that life, you've never gotten connected to Christ because you never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And that's the only thing that will separate you from God. So, so that's why I think he's referring to that, and maybe because of the false teachers that are, that are the Gnostics that are, because in Second John he talks about how there's these antichrists, you know, don't even invite them into the house, push them away, keep them away, that that might be what John is referring to. Those antichrists, those false teachers, the Gnostics who were preaching a different gospel. But you can do a lot of study on this on your own too. So if you come up with a different answer, come talk to me. Be fun. John goes on from there and he says, we know that anyone born of God now, some of your versions, if you've got New American Standard, English Standard Version, will say, we know that anyone born of God does not sin. NIV kind of takes that word there and, and says, well, it's not continuing sin. The one who was born of God keeps them as safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So 
but actually the word that's there is sin, but it, we, and I'm not going to give you all the Greek, but the particular way that the structure is, it's a continuing action. It's not a one-time thing, meaning, hey, you don't do any sin at all. I remember when I went to seminary, and I would go to visit other churches. I would be the fill-in preacher or, you know, hey, the, the, he's representing the seminary. And so I remember one time I, I gave a sermon, and then afterwards, one of the elders, an older gentleman, he must have been in his 80s, he and his wife came up to me, and he was giving me some thoughts about it and, and whatever. And he said, you know, it is so good that to, you as a young man are, are following God and being there. And you know, if you follow him closely, you'll be like me someday and just not sin. And his wife, out of the corner of my eye, I could see was rolling her eyes. <laughs> I'm sorry, sin is a part of our DNA. We have a new master, and we actually have a new nature but as Paul says, we're constantly fighting that old man that's inside, you know? So it's not that, hey, we never, ever do anything wrong. It's that our default mechanism, our default operating system is under a different control, and we don't do like we used to do all the time. It's kind of like, and this is going to show my age, that we were once had MS-DOS as our operating system on a computer, and now we have Mac OS whatever, you know, we're not controlled in the same way. We don't respond always in the same way, even though we, we can fall into sin and, and times when we don't even want to. But what he's showing here, that, that because we're born of God, it's not our, our nature there. And that, that we're, God's there to save us. In fact, this, this part where it says the evil one cannot harm them, if you look at other verses, it says cannot touch them. But, but that particular word, touch, is like what Mary did when Jesus rose from the dead, where he was touching him, he was grabbing him, holding on to him. It says the evil one, Satan cannot grab a hold of us and control us. He could try to influence us. <laughs> he can try to do all kinds of things. But, you know, we're, we are gods, and, and we are in his hands. It says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under control of the evil one. And there, John does a lot of contrast and night and day, sin and, and, and righteousness. But, you know, we are under God's control. We're his children. But when we look at the world, we're going to still see the old operating system working. It's still something we're going to be fighting against. John, 1 John 2, so if we go back a little bit in this letter... He says it this way, My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. In other words, we who have accepted Christ have had our sins atoned for, but there's a huge vat of atonement ready for those who are in the world to be able to help cover their sins. It doesn't mean that all sin is gone. You know, one of the big lies that is out there right now is that, that people are, are basically good. People are just good. Have you ever heard that? You hear it in all kinds of places. You know, that is against what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches is that we are sinners and we're going for our own stuff and we're neglecting God until... We see him and find him and by faith accept what he gave to us. So we have had our sins forgiven because the Holy Spirit's testimony was accepted and, and we're into his kingdom. There, there's a class in the theology program so, called soteriology 
which is the doctrine of salvation. And we explore that theme a whole lot in there. And I think that's so important for us as Christians to understand that. But he says there's still the world out there that is being controlled by the evil one, but there's hope for those to turn. And that's really why we're a part of the process of communicating that hope to the world. John 5, 20 and 21, he ends this way. We know also that the Son of God has come, and I misspelled that, wow, I think, and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in the Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal Father. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So in other words, we are now connected through Jesus. That, it's the knowledge of him that's, that's saving, not this special knowledge that the, the false teachers, the Gnostics, are trying to present to us. John's pointing, he is the source of all things. And he ends with this statement that, that's just kind of a little bit brisk, that's just kind of ending, but he says, keep away from idols. In other words, anything that gets between you and God, that... that becomes primary in your life, that you're focusing all your effort on, you're even maybe even looking for it to be your salvation, you've got to remove it from your life. It, it could be money. Money's a good thing, but if it becomes your only focus, it's a bad thing. It could be politics. Now, I have a particular viewpoint in politics that I think is the best for, for helping the Christian message go out there, and I, I support certain people because I think they fit into that, but my politics is not going to save anybody. And if that's all of our focus, there's a problem. It becomes our idol. And guys, sometimes sports becomes our idol. We live to, from one football game to the next or whatever. It just be, we put all of our effort into it. I know there's a period of my time where it seemed like I was heading in that direction. But it could be anything that gets between you and God that becomes preeminent in your life becomes an idol. Said so instead... Make Christ your salvation and your focus for all things. Now, now I, I kind of mentioned a little bit about my story. There's a piece of me that does not want, and wants to stop the sermon now, let's pray and go home. But, but since Tim asked me to preach, um, God was in the back of my mind whispering, you have to do this. So I'm going to obey God. You know, I, I talked about early on how I, I felt called to ministry and to go to Bible college, but I had a dark passenger with me. You know, since high school, or really junior high school when I first identified it, I, I struggled with depression and anxious thoughts. And, and sometimes it would become so great that it would stop me from doing what I needed to do. And, and there's times I, I needed to go to, to get professional help, Christian counseling at times, and even medical professions uh, professionals for that. But for the most part, you know, I found ways to, to just keep on keeping on, you know, do the things that God wanted me to do. But, but over the years, there were things that were happening around me and in my family, stresses, uh, disappointments, pain. And when I hit my 40s, I started to fall apart. It got so I, I, I pushed people away. I became isolated, and I made decisions that were just really stupid, but it was all to try to somehow stop the pain. And in the process, I lost my marriage. I almost lost my home, 
I, I, my children were staying there with me. I, I couldn't pay bills, couldn't do stuff. God intervened and helped me get through at least some of that. But I was constantly oppressed in my thinking. And at night I would lay at night and I would feel evil presence all around me. And there were voices just attacking me. You know, curse God and die. You know, we want to get rid of the pain, just end it. You know, there was a song that, that uh, I heard once time, and I think I thought about it a few times. It was, you know, should I stay or should I go? If I stay, there will be trouble. If I go, it will be double. But I, every night I, I, I made plans. I thought about how I would actually kill myself. And the oppression got so bad that one night, it was kind of like, this is it. Is this the day to step over the line? And I remember starting to lean in my mind forward to say, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And God gave me a vision. I saw, as I opened my eyes, the, the faces of my two children. And immediately I felt the anguish and pain that I was about to do for them. And then there was like a, a, a shaft of light between them. I knew it was God. Now, I, I yelled at God saying, God, I, I know you don't exist, which is a, a sign of insanity for me to talk to a being who doesn't exist and tell them they don't exist. But that beam of light came through and my, my, my life flashed before my eyes. You know, you wonder what that's going to be like. They talk about that. Hey, it's like watching a movie. No, it's like, at once, the good, the bad, the ugly, just was boom there. And I knew this was the time to make a decision. And I knew I had to stay. That grieved me because the pain was so intense. But that small staff of light started to push off all that darkness. And I started to turn to God. First, that groanings, that, that words it says in the Bible, too deep for words to express, and then poured it all out. And for the first time in months, I fell asleep peacefully and slept through the rest of the night. Now, the next morning, my life wasn't all better, rose it, but there was still a road to go down. There was still quite a bit of healing to do. But God showed up. You know, we talked about earlier, you know, is there a way that we could push God away? You know, is there that, that sin of apostasy we can do where God just says, oh, I'm done. Well, my experience is, no, he's not. He's never done. He's always there making himself available. You know, the, the verse about how evil cannot touch you or grab a hold of you. Well, evil was all around me, but it couldn't destroy me because God intervened. There, there are some verses from Romans I, I just want to go through now. These are not in your notes for version, but the end of it became my mantra. And I just want to read these for a moment. Romans 8. Romans 8 is a fantastic chapter. The book of Romans is a fantastic chapter. Read it every chance you get. It starts in verse 31. He says, What then shall I say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then we skip to verse 37. This, I said this so often. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I, I tell the story, but it's God's story. But I tell it because there are some people, maybe you're in the room, maybe you're watching on Zoom, or maybe for some weird reason you just happen to stumble across this on YouTube and you've given up on God and you don't even know if he's there and God directed you here. You cannot, as a Christian, Have God give up on you. He's always there. If you're struggling, if you're fighting those those evil thoughts and those things that are attacking you, there's a way of escape. Turn to God. Turn to one another. Maybe you have a Christian uh, co-worker or family member or friend, and if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been pushing them away because you don't want to hear that all over again. Well, they're there for you. Whatever it is, God is here. He wants you. Now, now as we close, you know, we, we have the cross over here. If you're here, if, if there are things that you need to lay before Christ, lay before his cross, you know, you can symbolically now just go and do it. Say, God, I've been struggling with this. This is, I want to lay this at the cross. You know, so, so many of the songs we sang and, and, and even Antoinette's testimony is that God's goodness is always there. Sometimes it hurts and we want to give up. But God never gives up on us. Let's pray. God, I, I cannot express my gratitude for you in, in finding me at my lowest points in life. And God, I pray for all those who, who sat through this message, who heard your word, that God, that you will bring healing to them, that you will help them to see the hope, that you will help them turn towards you in a deeper way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dismissed. Go with God.